Hey, everybody. Come on over here. It's the Northern Miner Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 120 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. This week we have a special in-house guest here, uh, Neen Allman. She's a communications professional here in Toronto, an author, a geologist, and a former journalist with the Northern Miner. She has a new book out. It is about the history of Placer Dome, the huge gold uh, major out of Vancouver. The book is called a History, Placer Development Limited, and Placer Dome. Helping her with the book was Justin Balk. This podcast is sponsored by the Yukon Mining Alliance. That's a group of 17 mining companies active in the Yukon. You can go to their website, yukonminingalliance.ca, for a terrific roundup of uh, their members' activities. And they have a nice Twitter feed at at investyukon. I keep a portfolio on Yahoo of all the explorers in the Yukon, and there's Terrific results coming out right now. It's that time of the year where um, the juniors are getting their assays back from the labs. So just as an example of some of the headlines here, Strategic Metals announces new high-grade gold discoveries that expand the precious metal system in the heartless Joe property, Yukon. White Gold acquires a stake in properties around new discovery on J.P. Ross. Metallic Minerals makes multiple vein discoveries in new mineralized zones at the McKay Hill Project. Strategic Metals discovers impressive gold and soil anomalies and high-grade gold mineralization at its Mount Hinton property. ATAC Resources extends Sunrise Zone with 26.7 meters of 12.95 grams gold. Triumph Gold announces three additional gold-rich drill, drill intersections from Blue Sky Porphyry. Uh, White Gold makes new high-grade discovery. So, yeah, lots of good stuff coming out of the Yukon these days, so keep an eye on that. Now let's uh, just take a little break and we will return with Neen. Today we have a special guest with us. We have Neen Allman. She has a long connection to the Northern Miner as a former staff writer, but she has uh, some big news. She has finished a book on Placer Dome, the uh, multifaceted company. Neen, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. Good to have you. And uh, Neen is our first uh, in-studio podcast guest, so uh, a little bit of a, a groundbreaker there too. So Neen, maybe just for people who haven't met you, anyone in Toronto would, would know you uh, as a communications professional. You're a geologist, a uh, former journalist. What, what is your background? I took geology at Edinburgh University, where I grew up. When I took geology, it was a bit difficult for women to get a job. I did have a, a year with the British Antarctic Survey based in their uh, English headquarters and uh, came to Toronto uh, because I was offered a similar research position at U of T. 
I'd been there for a year and a half when I met the editor of the Northern Miner, who decided that uh, he would like to offer me a job. And I joined, I believe, as the first geologist and definitely the first woman on the editorial staff. I was with the Miner for 13 years, um, covering a lot of properties in Canada and uh, as far away as Australia. And then I moved over into the corporate world in their public relations, investor relations side of things. And when my kids were um, kind of growing up a little, um, I decided to set up my own corporate communications business from home so I could keep an eye on them too. And it worked out very well for me. I um, helped mining companies tell their story, uh, a lot of annual reports, and just generally uh, enjoyed describing the industry. I worked on one corporate history about Homestake. I edited that book, uh, enjoyed that so much that I looked around for another company that might be interested in having its history recorded, and Placer Dome came to mind. Right. They hired me in 2004 for a couple of years to work on the project, which was fascinating, and then Barrick took over, and the project kind of went sideways a little bit, but I decided to continue it on my own time, and finally, we've now got a book. Fantastic. <laughs> now, Placer Dome, I guess they would have been leading up to their 80th anniversary, right? Is that why they were yes. fund a book? They were founded in 1926 yeah. um, the, by an Australian lawyer and New Zealander trained in England who was based in Vancouver. They set up operations, at least they set up offices in Vancouver and San Francisco and in Australia and they were looking for gold dredging operations at that point. Right. I guess we would probably have two kinds of listeners. You'd have people who worked at Placer Dome for years and know everything about the company, and other like young professionals that, you know, the Placer Dome name has kind of disappeared in the corporate life. So maybe just for the, the newbies, as it were, to the industry, explain what Placer Dome was. It, even the name itself sort of alludes to, you know, the Canadian hard rock and then the adventurous South Pacific stuff. like. For someone who doesn't know Placer Dome, what was Placer Dome to Canadian mining? They were based in Vancouver, that which was a little unusual for most of the major companies were based in Toronto or in the States. They started off with, uh, they were very successful with a Placer operation in what is now Papua New Guinea. That gave them a base out of Australia, so they also moved on to uh, tailings operations for gold in Australia and coal. When the Placer operations were beginning to wind down, they acquired a property in BC that at that point was producing tungsten. Tungsten was an up and down commodity, but fortunately they found lead zinc deposits on the same property. That was the Salmo operation. From that, they spread around the world looking and developing properties in the States, in Australia. Um, They eventually went on to South America. They developed a name for themselves, basically in developing and building mines themselves, frequently, if not better than on schedule and on budget. I'm just holding the book now, and it's a beautiful book, I should say. It's like a coffee table book. Because Nina's a former journalist, I, I feel like journalists often write the best histories. They got the like of course. Sh- Shirer or uh, William Manchester or something like that. Uh, so it's got the little zip to it. Even though the Placer name is Placer Dome name has kind of disappeared, like these assets are major assets that are continue in production or until recently. So some of the names just off off the bat: Detour Lake, 
Kina, Sigma, Endaco, Gibraltar, Markhopper, Misima, the whole oil and gas division, Falcon Bridge interest. Um, that into 2005, you've got Granny Smith, Henty, Kalgoorlie, Osborne, Campbell, Muscle White, Porcupine, La Coipa, Porgera, South Deep, North Mara, Bald Mountain, Cortez, Golden Sunlight, Turquoise Ridge, Zaldivar, Pueblo Viejo, Cerro Casale, Donlan Creek, Mount Milligan. So, so many of these other companies. So, of course, a lot of these assets ended up with Gold Corp and Barrick, uh, apart from uh, and some other juniors as well. But it's quite a quite a track record there. Yeah. So the the company was in existence for eighty years, if you don't include the initial dome years. Right. And they were involved in more than fifty mines. They were. Placer was taken over by Barrick in 2006, and Barrick is still operating and building on some of those Placer mines. Right. So putting together this book, and I should say it says compiled by Neen Alman and Justin Balk. So where's Justin now? You're here by yourself. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, once I had started working on the book, um, I was in the Placer offices in Vancouver one day, and their librarian came to me and said she had had an inquiry from one of their geologists working out of their Brisbane office. Justin had written up about Placer's operations in Papua New Guinea for his master's thesis. Mm -hmm. And out of interest, when he was working for Placer, he started compiling timelines of all the various operations from the information he had access to in the Brisbane offices. So, So using his information, it was very useful for me to build on while I was interviewing a lot of people in mm-hmm. the Placer offices. After the sort of the first part, we kind of lost touch, but his information was very useful. And once I realized that I was going to actually manage to complete this book, I renewed acquaintance with him, and he was exceptionally useful oh, in great. fact-checking yes. and proofreading. Great. <laughs> <laughs> and he also wrote up about Granny Smith where he had worked. Right, right. I should say, you know, it's very unusual to have a company book. Usually it's funded by the company in an anniversary year, or else there's personal remembrances of a individual that they'll often fund their own book. So this is very unusual to have a book come out without the company around, as it were. So you got some uh, major support from yes, people. Could you maybe tell us about that? Um, Graham Farkerson, who, a former director of Placer Dome, has been very supportive when it came to um, funding the design and production costs. Oh, great. And um, and he also provided me with office space from time to time. And then the, it dawned on some of the other former employees that posting a book uh, of this size is going to be a little bit expensive. Yes. And uh, so I have had several people have chipped in to cover the, the shipping and handling and postage costs, which oh, makes great. a huge difference. Yes. And let me just give out the <laughs> website uh, while we have it here. Uh, it's called www.aplacerdomehistory.com, all one word. And uh, we'll leave you a link in the show notes and everything. And from there, you can order it um, with PayPal o- online or else mail a check uh, to um, Almond and Associates. What was your biggest impression of some of the in- personalities in uh, Placer Dome? Was there someone that really changed the course of the company or was particularly dynamic or colorful? One of the early presidents, John Simpson, had a major impact on the company. He was engineer focused. He seems to have been an amazing personality. He took an interest in everyone. He walked around the office every day and he was still highly respected by 
all the people that I spoke to who had uh, worked with him, and, and they still refer to him as Mr. Simpson. Ah, yes. There was a little joke that apparently he um, he did say some supplier was taking some of them, uh, the plaster people, on a cruise, I think, in Vancouver one time. And Mr. Simpson said to his um, his fellow colleagues that he was Mr. Simpson in the office, but he was John on the boat. Uh, he was uh, inducted into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame very early on, too, right. well worthwhile. Just looking through the book, uh, you got some great photos there. Of course, the first major um, project for Placer Development was that Belulo mine where they're flying in um, dredges by uh, junker aircraft and flying in cattle in the junker aircraft. And <laughs> you to get your beef supply. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, to me, this sort of uh, exemplified the daring uh, adventurousness right in the company right from the beginning. Yeah. I think um, planes had been used for early exploration in northern Ontario up until that point. But it was Charles Banks who looked at the aircraft uh, that were being produced in Germany and figured that a dredge could be split up into parts. Yes. And he won. Uh, he was presented with a medal from one of the American societies just for leading the way with air transportation. Initially, it took about three weeks for supplies to be walked in and walked out to the site from the coast. But with the planes, they were able to hop things over a mountain range and do about a couple of flights a day. Right. And then um, the Japanese had their way with uh, Belulo, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> World War Two intervened, yeah. and the Japanese never made it to the Belulo operation, but they got pretty close. Right. And uh, initially when um, they entered the war, the families were moved away from the mine site to Australia, and there were people working there. And when it was decided to leave the operation, they had to walk across country through land that probably had not seen many white people before. Or and uh, but they made it, and then Placer did go back at the end of the war and restarted the operation. And a bit of smuggling the gold out. The last was there someone burying gold in a graveyard or something like that? Yes, well, so they. Um, they had to leave the, the site quite quickly and shut everything down, and they did have some gold already produced there. So I think it was known only to three people that they had a, a midnight trip to the local cemetery to build, uh, to, to bury some of the gold. And they were able to go back after the war right. and retrieve it and then carry it out. So gold miners out there, there's your pro tip for the day. If you have to flee your uh, mine site, just bury the gold in the nearest graveyard. And on a mark. On a mark. But remember where it is. <laughs> and another one that kind of jumped out at me, I kind of kidded uh, Neen, this was her journalistic background, the great teaser here, the Amelia Earhart connection to, oh, yes. to Placer Dome. Uh, tell us what was that. The, because of the, the aircraft link, they, they were used to flying planes in and out of the mine site. And Amelia Earhart was doing her round-the-world attempt. And she was flying into, not the mine, but the coastal airstrip that they used. The mine manager at the time was American and very interested in what she was trying to do. So he and his wife flew from the mine to meet with her. And she checked the plane and then set off on the next leg of the journey and that was the one where the plane disappeared 
and is still causing a lot of interest as to where it might have disappeared, where it went down. There was some conjecture about just what might have happened, and in one of the files in a placer filing cabinet, they found a letter from the one of the operators at the airstrip that she left from mm-hmm. that was able to confirm some of the, um, the, the flight statistics. Right. And, and the, I, I think the thinking now is that they ran out of fuel and landed on a, a coral reef and did last for some time on the island, but both she and her co-pilot perished and the plane sank into deep ocean waters. Placidome kept on uh, working in the Pacific Rim the, on the Asian side there. Like when, um, well, I think once they realized that their placer operation in New Guinea was winding down. They also had placer operations in Colombia, which carried them through the war years yes. when Bulolo was shut down. But with, with Australia being their base for the Bulolo operation, they looked around there. They did a little bit of exploration at that point, but they did start producing gold from tailings operations, from old gold mining operations in Australia, and they bought into coal operations in New South Wales. From that, they eventually bought into a mining and manufacturing company. And also from Bulolo, they had established a plywood manufacturing plant, looking to the days when the gold mining would mine would wind down, and they were looking for something that they could leave, an early sustainability approach right. to their mining. Yes. Um, and from that, they also had uh, plywood operation in outside Sydney. And then I would say probably one of the negative legacies was the, the spill of the environmental problems. Like, wh- what do you make of all that as time has passed? Do you mean Mark Copper? Mark Copper. Mark Copper. Is that portrayed correctly in the media today? or It's one of those ones that hangs around. It depends what report you have looked at. Uh, it was an unfortunate accident. The company looked into it and they did a lot to remedy the problems. Can you just explain what happened there? Mark Hopper was one of their early foreign operations. It um, went into production in 1969. 1969. (laughs) It's like Luzon or Northern Philippines, was it? In the Philippines, yes. They had had been interested in the property as a copper prospect for some years. They did some exploration and they had to wait for foreign ownership regulations to be redrafted in the Philippines. I think initially foreigners were only allowed a 15% interest. They did redraft those and they were permitted to own 40% and that was what they went in with. As time went on it was a little, well it was probably more than a little difficult because they only had representation of two members on a six-person board so they did not control the board. And that became the problem in dealing with the Mark Hopper spill. There were several reports done on it that showed that Placer had done more than it was bound to do. Right. And at the outcome, they were to pay for the main owner to finish off some of the environmental work, which I believe was never done. Right. Or something that was left in limbo somewhat yeah. because of the... Um, I think the fact that they did not control the board. Right, right. Hmm. Now turning to Canada, we had the sort of dome side of uh, the company. You had the Hard Rock Dome, um, and then 
I guess the two big assets would be the dome area the, and then the um, Campbell Red Lake, two sort of superlative. Would those be the two that really stand out in Canada? Or? Yes. They had, um, they had the Sigma mine too mm-hmm. in Quebec, but uh, Dome of Timmins and Campbell, which the Dome company had uh, got involved with in 1944. They brought Campbell into production in 1949, I believe it was. And then in Dome, the Dome operation in Timmins, they also, Dome had bought Detour and they had the Sigma mine, so they had operations in Quebec, northwest Quebec too. Mm-hmm. They were hamstrung somewhat because of the affiliation with Dome Petroleum and its debt position. Oh. But that was subsequently resolved. The resulting outcome gave uh, increased their interest in the detour operation. I see. I'm just coming the some of the stats from the book here. Over 80 years, Placidome produced 90 million ounces of gold, 8.5 billion pounds of copper, 380 million pounds of molybdenum, as well as tungsten, lead, zinc, cadmium, coal, iron ore, silver, mercury, and then the whole oil and gas division. At their peak, they had uh, 18 operating mines around the world. From including Canada, USA, Mexico, Chile, Australia, Papua New Guinea, Philippines, Tanzania, South Africa. So it was one of these really far-reaching companies. But to me, at the time, it seemed like there was a bit of weakness in the company. It was how did the um, takeover happen with Barrick? It was a hostile bid originally. Is there like hubris in there, or what made them weak to be taken over? It was kind of a shocking thing at the time. Hang on, I've got to think. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of time. Yes. I think it was it, mining companies, gold mining companies, were looking for how they could expand, how they could expand their resources, uh, reserves, and increase their production. And the way they were doing that at that time was by mergers and acquisitions rather than going out and finding it themselves. Yes. So. Uh, they were more into acquiring properties and continuing the development of those. Mm -hmm. And the number of large gold mining companies was dwindling, so it was a question of eating or being eaten. Interestingly, somebody did say to me recently, it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if Placer had taken over Barrick. Yes. Which <laughs> makes the mind boggle somewhat, but it would, uh, it's worth thinking about. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't seem to have the ag- aggressive management that yes. Barrick did. But mm. I think just as an example of how quickly things ramped up there in the 80s and 90s, in 1987 was the big merger of the three companies, and then 1989 was the first time it was above one, one million ounces of gold. Yes. So it was only 1989 they mm-hmm. surpassed one million. I was surprised about that. And then by 1997, you had 2.6 million ounces of gold production. 2003, it had gone up to 3.9 million ounces of gold production. Mm-hmm. So it's the like the peak of the empire, and you're hired to write the book and everything, and then it all's blown apart yes. three years later. And and the and because it was sold chunks, the Canadian assets were sold to Gold Corp, and yes. uh, everything was kind of thrown scattered, to, scattered to the wind. Yes. Um, so I, I it was know. funny. One afternoon when I was in the Plaza offices. Um, there was a summons for everyone to come into the boardroom and oh celebrate. Boy. And that that precise day, Placer's capitalization had exceeded that of ah, Barrick. Yeah. So there was a small celebration, <laughs> and then everybody went back to work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there was a lot of competition between different companies as to 
who was doing what and who was negotiating with whom and who was going to turn up owning right. some other property. And Barrick had you know, a strong stamp of their culture on the company. So yes. was there anything left of the Placer Dome uh, group or was everything I think a lot absorbed? Uh, quite a lot of people did continue working. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have that much contact with them after that. And then some scattered the way the way it does. That when there is a merger, some people stay, some people move on. Yeah, it's kind of like ripples in a pond. Yeah, there was one period when I first started with the company. Every I would go all over the world, and they were all like former Placer Dome projects that they'd spent hundred million dollars on, and then left, yeah. and someone else was developing it or something like that. I think the company people really liked working for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, their quarter century club for people who had been there for more than twenty five years had a huge number of members right. and it was probably unusual but within the company there were always minds that they could move on to mm-hmm. and they had, because they were developing and building the mines themselves, they could call on people in the company. So people stayed because they had the opportunities right. and there was this rapport and this camaraderie amongst the people that I met that was very, very strong. Right. It reminds me of Agnico Eagle today where they, they do the exploration, the development themselves and you know, yes. someone wants to you know, someone's working in Quebec and wants to be a mine manager, maybe they can go to Nunavut or something. Yes. Uh, they can have these internal growth opportunities. Yes, uh, they, can, so, they can move within the company. So, so people are very happy with their careers because they can move around within yes. the company and the company's growing. Mm-hmm. And developing your own projects, you're not mm-hmm. spending all this money on acquisitions and yes. stuff like that. And there was um, there was definitely a culture of the various departments worked with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't exploration, you know, those weird geology types. Um, the geologists worked with the engineers and the finance people and the marketing people were all involved. So everybody was working with the one goal of producing a decent mine or building it or running it or whatever. Right. And a lot of people talked to that. that the, and, and also the people going up, they were, they were given responsibility. They weren't cast out on their own, but there were opportunities for them. And you kind of allude to this a bit in the book about they were in some ways pioneers with the CSR issues and um, very much so labor relations and uh, corporate governance too. Mm -hmm. Um, They seemed to lead a lot of other companies. They became aware of, I think, a lot of things with the merger between Dome and Campbell and Placer. They established environmental awareness then and raised the company interest to the board level very soon. The environmental awareness developed into sustainable development and sustainability awareness and with a strong emphasis on safety. Because of combining two boards between Dome and Placer, they had to develop corporate gov- a corporate governance structure that I believe was very much a leader hmm. amongst all the mining companies. They also did a lot um, with the sustainable development. It wasn't just within the company. They did a lot to um, lead the rest of the mining industry mm-hmm. along the right road. Funny stat here. Just the, uh, in 1957, the Northern Miner reported that father-son combinations at Placer Dome accounted for no less than one quarter of the dome mine's workforce. It's kind yeah. of a funny, maybe that was Maybe that was common at the time, but I thought that was kind of interesting. Yes. Uh, stat I suppose there. people being in Timmins, yeah. you know, that was um, one of the, the good jobs to go in for. Let's talk about the oil and gas division. What happened there? There was a, there was a period where mineral companies would often have a, a minerals division and an oil and gas, uh, sort of 1970s era. Uh, the original founder from Australia, William Freeman, he was a lawyer. 
he had interests in tin dredging in Malaysia, but he also apparently had some interests in oil and gas. And Placer, I think, I think around about 39, had some interest in some US oil and gas properties. In the mid-1940s, they got going and they were quite active, I think more as a passive investor in, in US oil prospects. Those did quite well. At one point they did sell them and made a healthy profit and then they got more active, both in the States and in Canada. They established themselves in Calgary and were involved in a discovery in northeastern BC that did quite well for them. Then I think it's always people say, well, is it worth doing this? Should we, should we sell it? Should we expand? And in the early 1980s, I believe that one school of thought was, well, we should get out of the oil and gas, at which point it, it so happened that their CEO at the time, Alan Bourne, went out and bought a US oil and gas company. Oh. Um, so they changed their tack, but they served them well, the oil and gas. Mm-hmm. And it was part of the, we're interested in anything that can make money. They sold their interests in 1991 when they were really focusing on gold. Uh, So you've just been engrossed in the history of Placer Dome literally for the past decade or more. Is there a lesson in Placer Dome's corporate history that a um, mine executive today could uh, benefit from? Interestingly, they were interested in anything that made money. Mm -hmm. And it has been said that just focusing on gold is rather a narrow-minded world. You're restricted in some of your options for growth. Yes. And I interviewed Norman Keevil, amongst the other people uh, at Placer, because he had spent a couple of years in Placer, and his PhD thesis was also based on Craigmont, I believe. Hmm. And he said that their model for tech was based on Placer Dome, basically that they would be interested in anything that would make money for them. Right. I think a, a great example of that is the Zaldivar mine, which is kind of one of the sleeper assets. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Barrick bought it. And I remember during the downturn in gold, it was literally producing half of Barrick's profits, that yeah. one copper mine. And Barrick barely mentioned it because it was a copper asset. Yeah, and people don't want to mention it because, yeah. oh dear, it's not a gold mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it messes things up, but it's a lifesaver. Yeah. And then I guess. When I was going to school way back when, one of the ideas was to mine a copper-gold porphyry because copper and gold would be counter-cyclical and you'd always yeah. be making money somewhere. Of course, that didn't really pan out um, in other years. But yeah, there is definitely a cyclical aspect to focusing on one mineral. Or Yes. And Placer began focusing more on gold at the end of the 60s, 70s. And, and I think by the time the early 1980s came, they had switched to gold because the base metals hadn't been doing so well. And they they started churning out gold mine after gold miner of precious metals. They right. also mined silver. And uh, at one point they were involved in the biggest silver mine in the world in Mexico. Wow. Um, yeah. They were, and they were fairly fleet of foot. They could move quite quickly on properties and developing. And their, their project development group was really what characterized the company right. because they, they did things in-house themselves. Yes, and just looking through the book you see going into production three years after discovery or something like that. Yes. Sort of the good Unbelievable. Old, the, the good old days, <laughs> <laughs> which is just impossible. Yes. You know? yeah. 
and uh, anyway, I just uh, I think that's a great uh, book here. So anyone who's interested in Plaster Dome, and again, many of these assets are still in production. I just give it my personal recommendation. This is, a, I guess, a $50 book, and it's beautifully put together, and again, with a journalist's eye for uh, interesting details. I thoroughly enjoyed doing the book, uh, meeting the people who were involved. It was lovely to talk to people who were so proud of the company and what they had been building with it. Yes. And, and I'm just glad that I finally got it done. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> I can't imagine having a book uh, Thank you. on your brain for, uh, what is it, 14 years or whatever. Yes. <laughs> Partially I'm an idiot, but I enjoyed doing it. Yeah. And uh, i got to say, uh, you know, Nina's modest here, but she went out and hustled to, to, to uh, get this thing done and get the funding for it, and uh, nothing would have happened without Nina pushing forward on this because, you know, after these corporate takeovers, things get tossed aside, so... Um, this is a, a real product of Neen's tenaciousness, apart from her skill in uh, writing books. <laughs> so thanks very much uh, for coming in, Neen. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. And I'll leave uh, links to where to buy the book. And uh, there's only so many printed, so if you want one, get one Limited right away. edition. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Okay. Thanks, Neen. Thank you. That's a, that's a, that's a half hour. That's pretty good. Oh, well, thank you. No, that was, that was nice. Yeah. And you just floored me a couple of times. Okay, I'm going... That does it for this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. And as always, you can help out the podcast and support it by liking, forwarding, and subscribing to the podcast. And this is a free podcast, and that's thanks to our sponsor, the Yukon Mining Alliance. I should say one other thing that uh, the last few episodes we've kind of diverted into the past, uh, the Canadian mining history. So uh, sort of enough, of, enough of that. We're going to move forward with uh, current events and uh, metal news and uh, that kind of thing going forward. So we're lining up more guests for the fall. So keep an eye out for that, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.